Welcome everybody, this is my interview with Denai Manyakti of the Hassle Free Clinic in downtown Toronto. So we'll be talking about things like STI testing, different STIs that are out there, the shame and stigma against STIs, and the ways that we can combat that shame and stigma. Also, we'll be talking about different resources and organizations that you can uh, reach out to, that you can follow in order to get support. So this is part one of two episodes with Denai. We'll be talking about different STIs that exist and different tests that you could do in order to figure out if you have them or not and the different guidelines for each STI. Okay, and without any more hesitation, here is the interview and I hope you enjoy it. See you soon. Yeah, so I wanted to start off, um, maybe you could give details about your position. I am one of the sexual health counselors at Hassle Free. I personally see people for counseling on different things like birth control, sexual health, sexuality. I provide STI treatments, different types of counseling services that we offer as well. But I work in the uh, woman in trans clinic. So the hassle-free clinic has two different clinics. There's the woman in trans clinic and the men in trans clinic. And generally they operate at different times. Um, so Monday, Wednesday, and Friday between 10 and 3, we have the women in trans clinic hours, Tuesday and Thursday between 4 and 8 as well. And then it's flipped for the men in trans clinic. They're there or Monday and Wednesday between 4 and 8, Friday between 4 and 7, and on Saturdays between 10 and 2. And it's in the same space. Uh, people who come do not have to worry about having OHIP. There's no cost for visit. The only thing that there's a cost for it at Hassle Clinic is birth control or yeast treatment. Okay. We, like I said, we see people without OHIP as well, so people don't have to worry about not being seen because of their um, status or because they don't have a, a health card, either because they just don't have one or it's expired or they've lost it. They can still come to our clinic, at least for sexual health services. And for free as well? For free, yeah. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Right. We are in downtown Toronto. We're at the corner of Church Street and Gerard Street on the northwest corner. <laughs> so it's, you know, depending on where you live, it may or may not be as accessible, but we're really close to streetcars and subway lines uh. for people who are coming from outside of downtown. So the type of testing or the type of services that we offer are sexual health services and the type of testing that we provide are for uh, sexually transmitted infections and bloodborne infections, other infections that aren't sexually transmitted. We also provide pap testing and can discuss other sexual reproductive health concerns. Amazing. Do you guys have another um, location or is it just the one downtown? Just the one downtown. Oh. So there are other sexual health clinics in Toronto that work similarly Mm -hmm. may not have the same kind of services, but there are other sexual health clinics that are funded by Toronto Public Health mm -hmm. um, in different parts of the city, but there is only one hassle-free clinic. Oh, wow. Okay. 
So sometimes people may say, oh, I was at your other location and I did a chlamydia test there. We don't have any other location, but you may have gone to another sexual health clinic okay. and had that. And we can't access by, you know, looking in any kind of database, we can't access any other records from yeah. elsewhere. So we have government, different levels of government funding, and we do get donations as well. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on the different kinds of programs we have that have different sorts of funding. But we are not primarily donation um, funded at oh, all. Okay. We definitely so, have different funding from the city and from the ministry as well, from the province. And, and how do donations help help the Hustle Free Clinic? Things that you know wouldn't necessarily otherwise be covered. So, for example, you know, if someone isn't able to afford, you know, a round of birth control one month, you know, we can offer maybe cover that. And also because um, all of our services are free, if you have a health card for certain things, you know, that's great because we can get it covered. But if it isn't, if you don't have a health card, then the clinic covers the cost of it. Um, We don't use health cards or OHIP for our regular STI testing. We use OHIP for pap testing or for testing for urinary tract infections or anything that has to go to a private lab, Mm -hmm. uh, we would need to use OHIP for. Okay. And if it has to go for public health, go go to public health, of course. um... Well, even though it goes to public health, we still don't use health cards. Okay. Oh, so okay. someone has a chlamydia infection, a positive result for chlamydia. It is reportable. These are still reportable infections. Um, but when we take information for services, we don't use the health card number for the STI test. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, you know, we need your name, date of birth, um, and we use those as identifiers, but we don't use the health card numbers for them. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I was wondering if there's any other things that you could tell me about the hassle free clinic that uh, you think it's important or you know something that the community or you know people should know about yeah so uh, in addition to the testing and the counseling we also do have a support group for uh, uh, women who are living with HIV it's uh, it's called the nursing clinic and it, it's run through hassle free clinic it takes place at um, PWA which is the people with AIDS foundation and that clinic is great for people who even you know if they've been diagnosed a long time ago uh, they can come they have different topics every meeting where people from the community come in and talk about you know maybe budgeting or healthy eating or um, healthy sexuality things like that and it's the first and third Wednesday of each month in the afternoon. Um, so that's something that people don't always know about and it's generally advertised through word of mouth. Um, so that's something that's good to know. We offer, like I said, we offer birth control and other medications uh, for treating STIs. We don't offer PEP or PrEP, okay. uh, which I can talk about later on. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can have counselors talk to clients who uh, are interested or for whom that would be relevant and refer to different places where they can access it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so another thing that's important to know is that right now during COVID, things have changed in terms of uh, the hours and the services that we can offer. So whereas before we had the two separate clinics, we no longer have the clinics during this, the separate clinics during this time. It's just one clinic. Oh, okay. Um, and um, anyone, any gender can come to the clinic. There are no restrictions in that 
pathway and the clinic runs from 10 o'clock until four o'clock. Okay. Every day. Every day, Monday through Friday. And then on Saturday from 10 until two. Okay. And mm-hmm. then Sundays is closed. And then Sunday closed, right? <laughs> the only thing that can be a bit tricky right now is that we don't do drop-ins anymore. Everything has to be done by appointment only. And because of that restriction and also the hours being changed, sometimes it can take a week or two to get an appointment spot. So that's just something to think about. We're also implementing social distance, distancing, frequent cleaning, screening before you're able to come into the clinic mm. as well. Um, and in order to come into the clinic to have an appointment. So that's something that will be checked at the door. So temperature will be checked. You'll get the screening questions about any um, respiratory symptoms and other non-respiratory COVID symptoms. And we are only allowing a certain number of people in the waiting room of time. So if you come to the clinic, just make sure not to come too early because we can't have you waiting in the waiting room. And don't be late either. Yeah. uh, Because (laughs) right. Um, So that's something to think about right now. And, you know, it's sort of a day to day thing as far as how the services will change because we go along with with how the pandemic is going along Mm. as well. So we're trying to do the best that we can right now. Um, You know, the counselors that are in clinic are using uh, people wearing masks. There's um, a plexiglass barrier as well between the waiting room section and the front desk section where the counselors are sitting. So just remembering to, you know, have a bit of patience during this time as we all try to navigate COVID-19 while also trying to provide sexual health services with, you know, our essential service as well. Of course. Yeah. Um, I've been wondering too, if how the rates have been going uh, during COVID with um, STIs and, and, you know, STI testing, like, I don't know if everybody knows that they have access to it or, you know, because clinics right now are going, it's mostly telehealth right now. So uh, really taking a different turn on our healthcare for sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Most of serv- health services in general right now are telehealth. Mm-hmm. Um, we also do have a telehealth component to oh. our services as well. So we are trying to offer virtual counseling in order to reduce the need for people to actually come into the clinic. So then it reduces the amount of people in the clinic. There was a point earlier in the pandemic where we were doing more virtual visits just in terms of like people describing their symptoms and if they actually needed to come in, then they could book an in-person visit. I'm not sure how um, that might or may or might or might not work out again, but mm-hmm. um, we're trying to incorporate both to accommodate as much as we can. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The numbers aren't going down, but you know, we also want to make sure we let people know that in order to reduce the risk of COVID, you know, engaging in, you know, sex that is protective of COVID and protective against COVID as well um, is something that we want to let people know is important. Mm -hmm, Definitely. So, you know, keeping to your bubble, if you have one, your sexual health bubble um, or your sex bubble, or, you know, sort of uh, thinking about things that can keep you socially distanced, but still able to experience pleasure, Um, you know, solo sex, sexting, you know, things that, you know, like internet. Yeah. 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 So that um, keeps us healthy in other ways as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess we'll start in with the the good stuff. (laughs) 
Um, yeah, I wanted to know when should people get tested typically? So like how frequent and how, like how long after an encounter should somebody get tested for each? I know there are a lot of STIs, but for each STI, how long is that window period um, Mm -hmm. when things show up or, you know, when is in your system? So generally we tell people they should be tested when there's a risk. So if you have a new partner or your partner has a new partner, or if you have uh, new partners often, then we would say every three to six months, depending on the type of risk. Um, If you're in an exclusive relationship, there are no other partners, um, you both know what your STI status is, depending on the STIs that you're concerned about, then sometimes people will opt to have uh, a test done as part of a yearly physical, um, or if there are any symptoms that come up, you know, you can test based on the symptoms. Um, But the window periods for the STIs vary. For gonorrhea or chlamydia, um, someone can test as early as, well, technically you can test as early as 24 hours after exposure, just because of the type of testing that we do, which is more sensitive than they used to be. But we often say, if possible, you know, 48 hours, you can come as early as, just in case there's anything else that comes up that we would want to capture in um, the visit for testing. Um, So gonorrhea and chlamydia, you can test very soon after. Um, Infections like syphilis, hepatitis A and B, um, or hepatitis E as well, though we don't really consider that an STI as much anymore, but the bloodborne infections, those we want to wait uh, at least six weeks if we're doing blood testing, because that's just how long it takes for um, you know, antibodies to show up in the blood and to have an accurate result. Um, things like trichomonas. Trichomonas you can test for early on as well. And then HPV, depending on what strain of HPV or what type of HPV there's concern about, or um, HSV, which is herpes, uh, herpes simplex, those you really have to wait for symptoms to show up. Yeah. So you have to wait for maybe an outbreak or... Right, right. And you could also check, um, am I wrong, but you could check uh, your blood for, I think, for HSV? For HSV, there is a blood test that exists. It's not one that we use at the clinic um, and it's not widely used at sexual health clinics in general just because we often find that it's not that helpful. Is it like kind of non-accurate or like less accurate? So with herpes specifically, uh, lots of people have been exposed over their lifetime. Yeah. And so it can tell you, so if it comes back uh, with positive results, depending on the type of test that you get. So there's a type that can tell you whether or not you've had an exposure. Um, and then there's a type which will tell you what type it is. Okay. Um, because many people have been exposed and could have been exposed um, in childhood, it doesn't really tell us whether you're going to have an outbreak. It doesn't mm-hmm. tell us if you've had an outbreak before. Um, and the first one doesn't really tell us what type it is. Um, so it's more helpful if you have a lesion or a sore, or sometimes people feel like they have cut in the skin, mm. um, then it's more useful to swab the site and determine whether or not it is um, a herpes infection that's causing it and also what type it is. Because if you have, for example, some sort of lesion from something else, or if you have a 
uh, award, but you know that you have the antibodies for herpes in your blood, that doesn't necessarily tell us whether that lesion that you have is from herpes one or herpes two, or if it's herpes at all. Mm -hmm. So it's more helpful to know what it is we're dealing with at that time with that specific symptom than to kind of know that you have it already. Some people find that it gives them peace of mind to know that they have it and then, you know, Mm -hmm. they navigate their lives in different ways as a result but for some people it can cause more anxiety yeah i can imagine mm-hmm. yeah and it was uh since we're on the topic of herpes um i was wondering if there's or if you could tell me the difference between hsv1 and hsv2 i know basically hsv1 is like cold sores on your lip and they're not sexually transmitted per se and that whereas um, HSV2 is more the genital or sexually transmitted herpes. So HSV and HSV1 and HSV2 are both considered sexually transmitted. Oh okay. So the idea is that HSV1 is a type that more likely is to be found in the head area. Okay. Um, That's where it wants to be so if you have a cold sore the general uh, idea is that you have HSV1 because HSV1 is more likely to be on your mouth. But you can also have HSV-1 in your genitals. Yeah, I was going to ask this, yeah. Yeah, and you can transmit HSV-1 from the mouth to the genitals. You can also transmit HSV-1 from genital to genital. Um, and since people don't generally have any testing done on cold sores, mm. we don't really know whether or not it truly HSV-1 that you have on your mouth. Mm-hmm. It could possibly, I mean, most of the time, yes, it's HSV-1, but you could also possibly have HSV HSV2 on your mouth or in your head area. Okay, wow, I never knew that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So um, just the presence of uh, cold sores or lesions in a certain place does not necessarily mean that it's HSV1 or HSV2. You can have either in both. Okay, and um, so then what are the major differences? Is one more severe than the other or? I mean, they they both can be as severe as the other. It really depends on the person. They're commonly the idea has been that with HSV-1, if you have it in your genital area, that you have fewer outbreaks or it's less intense, but it may not necessarily be that way for everyone. So it's, unless you know what type it is for sure, it's not necessarily different from the other. There's some people who have HSV-1 in uh, their genitals and they can have outbreak every so often depending on their own general health. Mm. And then you can have people that have HSV-2 and may have had outbreak you know, frequently at a certain point in their life and then you know later on they may not have as many outbreaks at all or may have an outbreak once and then won't have an outbreak again until many years down the line. And is it transmitted when you don't have an outbreak typically or can it be? It can be. So it can be yes. So the highest risk for transmission is when you have symptoms present and symptoms would be any lesions or if you're having an outbreak that's you know the time where you are most likely able to transmit it to transmit the virus to someone else. But there are lots of people who uh, transmit the virus without having any symptoms and they can have what's called asymptomatic shedding. So they're shedding the virus, but they don't have any symptoms. And it's hard to know when you're having that asymptomatic shedding. Sometimes people might have what's called prodromal symptoms. So they might feel some tingling or burning before an outbreak happens. Mm-hmm. So they can transmit that time. And sometimes, you know, people transmit 
transmit without even knowing that they have herpes at all. So they either had an outbreak a very long time ago and then haven't had one since, Mm -hmm. or they had an outbreak um, that was mild and didn't know that whatever they had was herpes. It's often misdiagnosed as well. Oh, wow. Okay. Depending on what kind of outbreaks you have. So, you know, like I said before, sometimes people feel like they have some cuts in the skin. um, And sometimes if you don't see herpes outbreaks a lot or the different types of ways that it can manifest itself, you may not know that's what it is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people don't realize that they have it and then, you know, can pass it on without knowing that they've had an exposure they may have had an outbreak for and aren't having any symptoms currently. And uh, yeah, I guess my next question is, um, so um, what kind of tests do we generally do for each STI? So I know for some of them it's urine, swab, blood. Um, So I was just wondering if you could go a little bit into that. Mm-hmm. So for gonorrhea and chlamydia, because it can be present in the throat, the the vagina, it can be present in the anus as well. You can have testing done depending on the type of sex that you have through throat swab, rectal swab, uh, cervical and vaginal swabs, and you can also test urine. Mm. So sometimes if people aren't symptomatic um, and sort of want to have tests, they can do a urine test or, and also have throat swabs done or rectal swabs done depending on what type of sex they have if they're for example someone's only uh, having vaginal sex and they have a vagina Mm -hmm. they can provide a urine sample Mm -hmm. which can pick it up Um, so that would be for gonorrhea and chlamydia for syphilis um, you would test with blood Mm -hmm. there is also if you are having um, a symptom that's called ischanker which is a sore it's a painless sore that can show up uh, wherever you may have come into contact with someone else's shanker that's usually the first sign of a syphilis infection but because it's painless depending on where it is people may not know that they have it oh wow but if it's obvious if you say you know i've got this thing here um i don't know what it is it doesn't hurt but it looks like some sort of sore or lesion mm-hmm. um the doctor can take a sample of that lesion mm. and send that off for testing just as you would for like uh, herpes i guess right it's a similar idea but the uh, way that it's done is different but oh. yes yes so you're sending it off. You're sending off that test to see if that thing specifically is a syphilis shanker. Oh, okay. Yeah. But otherwise, um, if you didn't know that you had the shanker or if it's already come and gone by the time you want to have syphilis testing done, then the blood test. And do these things, like, um, do they happen more externally? Like, can they happen in internal, uh, like, say, in, inside the vagina or something like that? Or inside the mouth? Yes, it can. Okay. It can, so yes, it can, probably it can have. So there, there might be like the circumstances where you can't see it right um in that case exactly exactly so if you can't feel it and you can't see it you won't know that it's there unless you're looking for some other reason and just happen to notice that it's there okay um though if it's inside the vagina that would be more difficult to just sort of casually do yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah how about the other stis like hpv uh hsv and then hiv you went into um herpes a little bit Mm -hmm. um but yeah, maybe the pap smear test for HPV, right? Yeah. Okay. So the pap test, it's cervical cancer screening mm-hmm. is basically what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is checking to see um, if your cervical cells are healthy. Mm-hmm. 
And what it can pick up are lesions, if they exist, that aren't indicative of cervical cancer. So you can have lesions, even if someone um, were to have a concern about cervical cancer, cervical cancer is something that would be very, very far away. It's a slow growing cancer. And most of the time, if you have an abnormal pap result, it doesn't mean that you have Okay. So the pap test, it's a cervical cancer screening. And sometimes if you have an abnormal result, um, that can be indicative of HPV. Okay. Yeah. Um, so what would happen is have uh, that type of result, then there would be follow-up depending on uh, the type of result that it is. It can either be repeating the pap in six months mm-hmm. um, or a referral to a gynecologist who would perform a procedure that's called a colposcopy. Mm. A colposcopy is um, when the doctor will take a closer look at what's going on on the cervix in real time. A pap test is sort of like a photograph. It's a snapshot of what's happening on your cervix. And, you know, a lot of times if you have that abnormal result or an abnormal lesion that shows up, um, by the time you get to the colposcopy, it may have resolved. In younger people, you know, they can resolve Um, If it is HPV, they can clear an HPV infection within two years. And so if people have what's called low-grade lesions, that's usually something that we follow by repeat path testing just to see how things go. And it's usually done over a year's period. So you have your repeat path in six months. If that's normal, then you repeat it again six months after that. That's normal. Then you're good to go back to regular screening. If you have another abnormal result with that first six-month check, mm-hmm. then you're referred to the colposcopy. Okay. Mm-hmm. And if people have what's called a high-grade uh, lesion, again, it doesn't mean cervical cancer. It's just something that you want to um, have taken a look at probably sooner rather than waiting. So with the high-grade, then we refer to the colposcopy right after the result. Okay, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's for uh, the strains of HPV that cause changes on the cervix. Oh, okay. There are other strains of HPV that cause genital wart, and those aren't the same strains that cause the changes on the cervix. And so with HPV that causes genital wart, you're testing when you have warts. Mm-hmm. And it's not a test where you you know take any samples and send to a lab. It's a visual. Oh, okay, so you have to look inside. See. So, mm-hmm. Okay. And so that's why, you know, if you have anything that looks unusual, it's better to um, go have a doctor take a look at it. Mm-hmm. And pap tests are generally done, I forgot what age, it was 20, it's 21 for Canada? You have to be 21 years it's old? It's 21. It's 21 in Ontario. So uh, for the cervical cancer screening guideline, they are governed by the province. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Most places it is 21 if you've been sexually active. If you haven't been sexually active and you're 21, there's no need to have a pap test done yet. So in Ontario, it's 21 if you've been sexually active and they're done every three years unless there's another reason why you need to have it more frequently. So again, if you've had an abnormal pap result, then you have it more frequently. And then people who are immunocompromised, so for example, people who are HIV positive, those folks would need to have a pap test done every year. Oh wow. Yeah. And it should 
be general knowledge, but we do find that there are uh, some people who say that their doctors, their primary care physicians aren't aware of that, mm-hmm. but it is something that's important to note. And for people who are immunocompromised, either with HIV or have other medical conditions that are suppressing their immune system or are taking certain medications, it's important to talk to your doctor about having more frequent pap tests. Okay. Um, and I was wondering as well, so is testing, like pap testing or, or like swabs, vaginal swabs, are they less accurate during your menstrual, st- menstrual stikes? Wow, I can't even say. <laughs> during your period. <laughs> so for pap testing, um, it's not recommended to do it with your bleeding. So you don't want to have anything that can interfere um, with the pap test. So if you're bleeding for any reason, if you're bleeding because of a period or if you're having any unusual um, bleeding or spotting, it's best to wait until you're not bleeding mm. in order to have the pap test done. Um, if you are testing for STIs, um, if you're bleeding heavily, it's best to avoid um, doing a vaginal swab mm. or cervical swab because that can um, interfere with the testing. And if there are too many interfering substances, um, the test may not be able to be done at mm. the lab as a result. And so then the person would have to come back and test again. Um, but it can still be done using, so if you're on uh, your period, you can still test using urine. Oh, okay. Um, even if there's like a little bit of blood in your urine, it's that? Yes. Okay. Yes, that's okay. Um, and if you're on your very last day um, of your period and you're having symptoms of an STI, so if you're having some unusual uh, discharge, if it's an unusual color, anything like that, then, um, you know, still come to the clinic and you can talk to uh, the doctor at the time to determine what's best. Because if you're only spotting a little bit, it may still be okay to do a cervical swab, mm-hmm. um, especially if you're having symptoms of an STI. And uh, speaking of which, um, there's there's a lot of uh, things that could happen that could be transmitted sexually that are not necessarily sexually transmitted diseases. And I wanted to ask you if you could um, explain some of them, like there's UTIs and vaginosis and all that. Um, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit of that and how that might come into play with STI testing. Mm -hmm. So the only infection that I would say is actually can actually be associated um, with sex, but not necessarily transmitted are UTIs. So the urinary tract infections, because you can have bacteria that can be pushed into the urethra. So it can be rectal bacteria that can be pushed into the urethra and that can happen as a result of sex and for people who are prone to UTIs, we recommend peeing before and after sex. I mean, peeing before and after sex is great yeah. anyway, <laughs> um, but especially if you're prone to UTIs, that can help to flush away um, some of that bacteria um, so that it's not something that you're having each time you have sex. Um, but again, UTIs can also happen, you know, it can be not unrelated yeah, to um, sexual activity. Right. But the other infections, um, they're not STIs, but they aren't sexually transmitted either. Okay. So bacterial vaginosis um, and yeast, they are infections which are due to an imbalance in the vaginal 
flora. Mm -hmm. So with bacterial vaginosis, it's an increase of bacteria that usually lives in the vagina. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things that can throw that balance off. So um, most of the time, it's things like using soaps or creams to wash the vagina or douching those vagisil type of sprays, deodorant sprays, feminine washes, quote unquote feminine washes <laughs> as well. You know, they're marketed to be, you know, these things that can, you know, make your vagina smell better or, you know, feel better or get rid of certain things. But what it's doing, uh, those things can actually make things worse mm -hmm. and they can actually cause the conditions um, that lead to bacterial vaginosis and then cause those issues mm -hmm. that you're trying to, you know, flush away or to spray away. So we always talk about the fact that if you have a vagina, think about the fact that it cleans itself. Mm -hmm. There's no need for any extra intervention. The vagina smells the way that the vagina is going to smell. And everybody has a different smell as well. So, you know, you don't need to worry about the fact that your vagina doesn't smell like spring rain or, you know, <laughs> or roses because it's not supposed to smell like that. Yeah. And there's been so much shame that uh, people have been taught to feel about their vaginas and the way that they look as well as smell. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is really important to impart to people that, you know, everyone vagina is different and if you have unless it smells like like a, if there's a fishy odor mm. that is um, one of the symptoms of bacterial vaginosis. Some people can describe a foul odor if they have something like trichomonas as well. And um, chlamydia as well? Sorry? And chlamydia as well? Chlamydia, there isn't usually an odor. Oh, okay. There's a discharge though. Yes. Right, yeah. Mm. Exactly. Mm. Um, and then with yeast, there can be a sour odor as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, so people, you know, if it's if it smells like bread, <laughs> then it could be yeast. If it smells like fish, then it could be bacterial vaginosis. But yeah, unless it's something like that, then the smell that's coming from your vagina is your normal smell. And it can change throughout the cycle as well, um, which is also the case for discharge. The amount of discharge, the way that your discharge looks, the consistency of your discharge also changes throughout the cycle. Um, so I talked about bacterial vaginosis, yeast, the same kind of thing. So um, if there is a disruption in the vaginal flora, you, then you have an overproduction of yeast. Mm -hmm. And then you can have symptoms like white cottage cheesy discharge in addition to um, the sour smell as well. Um, and with both yeast and bacteria, bacterial vaginosis, they can come and go on their own. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, once your body, you know, gets back to its normal um, level of bacteria or yeast, then, you know, the issue is resolved. Some people find that it comes and goes frequently, or it's something that just continues no matter what you do. In those cases, then you can talk to a physician about it and it can be treated either with antifungal for the yeast infection or with antibiotics for the bacterial vaginosis. Sometimes when people have bacterial vaginosis and they treat with antibiotics, they can also then get a yeast infection as a result. A lot of doctors tell me, or like, because I work in a clinic as well, we tell people to use probiotics when they're using antibiotics because that kind uh -huh. of balances it back or 
and yeah. like yogurt and you know healthy stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> with the natural uh, natural bacteria that usually helps balance it out a little bit better right right mm-hmm. and then if possible you know eliminating some of the things that could lead to uh, yeast infections such as you know tight clothes so if tight jeans also sometimes uh just lead to bacterial vagina uh to sorry to yeast, um, antibiotics, like you said, sometimes birth control pills, certain types of medication like steroids can uh, also increase yeast. So sometimes you can control those things. Other times you can't. So if you're taking birth control pills, you know, yeah, it's going to happen. Sometimes it might be something that comes up. And sometimes, you know, if it's hot outside, it's hot outside. You might see that you have more people who are experiencing uh, yeast or bacterial vegetables symptoms during the summer mm-hmm. and maybe not as much you know in the winter so it, it really depends maybe if you're working out too or if you're like you generate a lot of body heat if you're working out if you're swimming and you stay to you wearing your suit or your workout clothes if they're you know damp with sweat then that can also um, lead to some symptoms as well. Okay. So it's something that, you know, is not necessarily all the time worrisome, but something to look out for. And people, you know, they know what their bodies are like, what their patterns are like. And so if this is something that's outside of the norm, then it's something to check out. But going back to what you had mentioned about chlamydia and odor, sometimes when people have an STI, Mm They also have bacterial vaginosis. Oh. Yeah. When we do testing, often, you know, we'll test for STI, so gonorrhea and chlamydia, as well as the bacterial vaginosis if there are symptoms. And sometimes we find that they're both there at the same time. And if they are both there at the same time, often once we treat the STI, then the bacterial vaginosis goes away. Oh, okay. So they're kind of correlated a little bit. Mm -hmm. So they can occur together, but once the STI is resolved, a lot of times the BV symptoms go away on their own. And uh, I was wondering as well, can men get um, yeast infections as well? I know they could get UTIs, obviously, but uh, mm-hmm. can they also get yeast or be carriers of yeast? So people who have penises, they can have yeast infections as well. Um, they cannot have bacterial vaginosis. Oh, yeah. Chris. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Some people feel like, oh, you know, maybe I got a BV because every time I have sex with whomever, I have symptoms afterwards. Mm-hmm. And in that case, you know, it could be that your body is responding to your partner and that, you know, there's something that your body feels is a bit foreign. So if there has been sex without condoms, your body could be, and there's ejaculation, your body could be responding to the other person's fluid, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And then there's symptoms that arise that way. So you might then notice a fishy odor. Sometimes people say every time they have sex with this person, they notice a fishy odor. So it's not that the sex is giving them BV. So that person is not giving them BV. Could it also be like hygiene and stuff like um say if somebody doesn't like brush their teeth and you know performs oral sex or doesn't wash their genitals um and they come in contact with one another stuff like that no 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 i don't think well i can't say for sure but that's generally not something that we see oh okay that's yeah as a cause for bb oh okay yeah and since we're talking about uh chlamydia and gonorrhea i had the question um 
about because I've heard of so many cases where um, you have a couple and one tests positive for chlamydia mm-hmm. and then the other one doesn't, even though they have unprotected mm-hmm. sex. So I wanted to know a little bit more about mm-hmm. that and how, like, how one could be positive and how one could be negative. Yeah. Even though they've had unprotected or sex without a condom. Yeah. There are times when people test after being informed that a partner um, tested positive for a for either gonorrhea or chlamydia um, that they test negative but because chlamydia and gonorrhea especially are so contagious if someone tests positive we always urge partners all partners to be treated as a contact just to make sure just in case you know if they have done a test but for some reason the sample was insufficient or, or collected incorrectly that we're not not treating based on a false negative so you're more likely to have a false negative than you are to have a false positive sometimes you know when urine samples are provided for example, uh, we always say, you know, you can't have had any urination in the past hour before providing this sample. Yeah. And you should only provide a certain amount of urine as well. So if you have, if you pee 30 minutes before you provided the sample, then that can affect the result. If you give too much urine, that can affect the result. We also need the very first of the urine that comes out. But if you give a midstream, for example, which is the middle of the stream, then that affects the result as well. Both the people who have tested negative after a partner tested positive um, have had this kind of poor collection situation. But just in case, we always treat partners as contact. And yeah, there are times when people um, get a result that comes back as negative, but we want to take that precaution first. Yeah, yeah, before it spreads even more, of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I was going to, I was actually going to ask, I'm glad you answered already. Um, So it's no midstream for STIs, but then Mm -hmm. for UTIs, you do midstream typically. Right. Yeah. I don't know about vaginosis and yeast infections in that case, if that's, if that matters. So with yeast and bacterial vaginosis, those are tested with swabs. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So you can't test for those um, with urine. Okay. Mm -hmm. What does get tricky is if you're providing a urine sample for both a UTI and an STI, then sometimes it takes some maneuvering with two cups and, you know, cup number one, you pee in first and then you pee in the next one right (laughs) after, just so we can get an an accurate result for both. Okay. So I heard of a case before, um, somebody had only oral sex um, and it was during COVID Mm -hmm. and the, the lab was not taking any throat swabs. They were not accepting anything at this point, right? So this person only had oral sex and they right. ended up being exposed to chlamydia. Uh-huh. So we, I was like wondering, like, is in that case, would it be detectable if you did a, like a vaginal swab or if you did a, uh, a urine test? I don't know if you... Yeah, that's a very interesting situation because if they've only had oral sex, the, the only risk would be in their throat. Mm-hmm. So testing with a urine or vaginal swab wouldn't tell us anything. Oh, wow. Yeah, it, because it's very site-specific. Just because you have it in one site doesn't mean that you have it in another. Oh, yeah. That was mm-hmm. a very interesting case. I had to ask about that. Uh, that that was, is very interesting. <laughs> we were like scrambling around, like how to do, how to deal with this and mm-hmm. yeah, a little much. Um, mm-hmm. I guess in in that case, you would have to like ask about the symptoms and try to figure it out. Otherwise, um, I mean, I mean, luckily the, the lab is accepting throat swabs now. Um, mm-hmm. But in the beginning, when like everything was locked down, like mm-hmm. they were not. 
at all. So. Well, then I guess in that case, if they had a partner that tested positive and they only had oral sex with that partner, it would treat as a contact. Yeah, that's true. Even though you couldn't take a sample, unfortunately, yeah. then treat them even though you're not able to test them. It makes me curious because, or are you just a little bit wary of the healthcare system? Because I know um, when you go generally go get an STI test, um, they don't really ask you if you had oral sex. And like a lot of people do, you know, and there mm-hmm. might be a lot of cases where they where they're safe with with uh, genitals with their genitals and you know penis vaginal sex or anal sex but they're unprotected when they're having oral sex mm-hmm. so it just makes me wonder like how many people out there like or cases like this there are you know Mm-hmm. And oh yeah, what would happen if it goes untreated as well? With the throat, it's really hard to know mm-hmm. just because regular th- testing for infections in the throat has only been done, I would say, in the past year or two, at least at our clinic. Oh wow. So with untreated infections in the genitals, so if someone has a uterus and they've got an untreated chlamydia or gonorrhea infection, that can lead to pelvic inflammatory disease, which can lead to infertility and then with people who have penises they can also it can also lead to infertility it can cause a lot of pain as well mm-hmm. so those are consequences that we know of mm-hmm. with infections in the genitals but especially where a lot of times people don't have any symptoms in the throat mm-hmm. it's hard to know you know if someone's had it how long they've had it you know when people started getting throat swabs regularly you know how long ago did they get that throat infection because if they've been having uh, unprotected oral sex for a long time and we were not testing in the throat mm-hmm. Exactly. Who knows? Who knows? So um, as far as I know, we don't really know what happens if it's untreated. In the throat. Okay. In in the throat. We know about other places, but in the throat. Oh, what about anal? Untreated anal? That I'm not sure of either. I mean, the biggest risk is, you know, then the transmission to other people and transmission in other places. So, you know, that's the big concern there in terms of untreated infections in sites other than the penis or in the vagina or in the cervix. Okay, very interesting. So I hope that didn't end off too abruptly for you. But it was quite long and I decided to cut it into two different episodes so we can rejuvenate and come back and be prepared to learn more about STIs and such. I hope you liked it. If you have any questions or have any comments or recommendations, please shoot me a message on Instagram. It's mtalks.co or you can email me at melissa at mtalks.co. That's my email. It's my first name, Melissa at mtalks.co and I will be announcing when I'm going to come out with part two. It should be sometime soon. I'm not going to leave you dry for too long. So I hope you enjoyed it once again and I'll see you next time.